Welcome to season two of What Really Happened. My name is Andrew Jenks, and on behalf of my hardworking producers, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gortz, and Seven Bucks Productions, and my incredibly dedicated coworkers at Cadence 13, I want to thank you for making us the number one Apple podcast in season one. We've been researching, interviewing, recording a lot for the last year to bring you this new season. We're going from six to 16 original episodes, from Sonic Warfare in Cuba to historic box office flops to Balloon Boy. And it all starts right now with the Scandal Match. It's just about 6 p.m. in the desert. No clouds, low humidity, about 82 degrees. There's excitement in the air as 14,000 people gather to watch. In less than 24 hours, in a sport not always given the attention it's about to receive, two titans will stare each other down and battle in a semifinals match. Only one can survive. These are the rules, and rules in this story will be manipulated, questioned, and put to the test. There are whispers about something fishy going on, more specifically a ploy. See, the interesting thing about these two titans about to go head-to-head is that they are siblings. They are sisters, and in fact, also best friends. And many believe that their father is a con artist, a loud, obnoxious, off-filtered con artist. A con artist in that sometimes he seems to stretch the truth, like the time he claimed to own a piece of space over India. Or a con artist because when the sisters have faced off in the past, some believe he tells them who must win. He likens their battles against one another to the Roman Empire, saying after one match, it felt like it's having two people in the arena like the Roman Empire used to do. One had a right to die, and one had a right to live, and the one that won had the right to live. There is no denying the success. As one of the most trusted and popular publications said at the time, the scenario this father and less press-seeking mother has put together is, quote, as impossible as one set of parents raising Picasso and Monet. After all, we're not just talking about two titans, but two worldwide celebrities with off-the-chart talent. The day before this battle, one of these sisters defeats a lesser-known opponent named Elena. As is customary, Elena talks to the press after her loss, but not so customary is that she mentions the sister's father. Most would agree that The greatest sin in sport is fixing a match, determining the outcome ahead of time. It breaks the very foundation, the whole point of sports, much less professional sports. And with that in mind, a reporter asks Elena, any predictions on tomorrow's match between the sisters? Elena responds, I mean, I don't know what the father thinks about it. I think he'll decide who's going to win tomorrow. What were whispers has now become a declaration broadcast to the world. Dad will decide. And so everyone is put on alert. Will he tell his two kids, 19 and 20 years old, who should win? Anticipation throughout the following day builds. The term must-see TV is certainly overused, but this truly is. Two of the best facing off is awesome. It's exhilarating. It's a unique pocket of time in which everyone knows they are watching history. And sisters, this is special. In the sold-out stadium, thousands of fans reached their seats earlier than usual, waiting for hours in this hot weather. Broadcasters prepare more thoroughly than usual, 
knowing there will be millions watching around the world. One of the Titans then takes the court. The crowd cheers. She begins practicing, preparing. Father comes up to her and whispers something. And then before the next player, her sister comes out, something strange, surreal, and astonishing happens. An official from the tournament takes a microphone and announces the other competitor, the other sister, has pulled out. She won't be playing. You can hear a coin drop, the energy zapped, crushed, you think of the synonym, fans in despair, commentators not sure what to say, and flashbacks of what Elena said. This was larger than the sisters. To pull out of a match because of an injury is one thing, but to pull out four minutes prior? That doesn't happen. Quickly and without more information, there's a consensus that this injury is implausible. The injured sister is, as it turns out, seen during this time, running around, not all that injured. When pressed about if she is really injured, her denial isn't particularly strong. It was a conspiracy. Fans and commentators both start to believe. It's fixed. Just like some say other tennis matches in years past were fixed. Just like the Battle of the Sexes in 1973. And so the fans, well, they make it clear, viciously clear, exactly two days after this incident, what they feel. The same publication that said the sisters' parents had raised a Picasso and a Monet now paint a very different picture, saying this is, quote, one of the ugliest scenes in the sport's history. The sisters say they will never return to the scene. They can't. And what was meant to be a pocket of time that people would forever remember sadly becomes a nightmare that everyone wants to forget, but can't. As one of the sisters would later say, I didn't know what to do. Nothing like this had ever happened to me. Nobody looked at what actually happened. And thus, the question remains. On that hot day in the desert, what really happened? The two sisters in the desert on that hot day in 1999 are Venus Williams and Serena Williams. Venus, 20 years old, and Serena, 19. And according to many, it was Venus who pulled out of the match only four minutes before because of an injury, or an order from her father, Richard Williams. As of this recording, Serena has won a record 23 Grand Slams. She's widely considered the best female tennis player ever. Billie Jean King has said so. Roger Federer has said she is the best tennis player, period. While many have an opinion on what just happened this year at the U.S. Open and thoughts around Serena's catsuit, I don't think you can understand either unless you take a trip back. Almost 20 years ago, Serena is ranked ninth in the world, and her sister, who's considered better at this early stage in their careers, is ranked third in the world. The location of where the Williams sisters were set to play in that semifinals match is Indian Wells, California, in the wealthy area of the Coachella Valley. The local Palm Springs paper said Indian Wells is home to an inordinately high percentage of our nation's most well-off retirees. Indian Wells is akin to a private club. When President Eisenhower first vacationed here, he loved it so much he made Indian Wells his winter home. President Clinton has played golf here, once in the 90s with other presidents, George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford. If you're into luxury hotels, spas, and plenty of golf and tennis, you'll like Indian Wells. 
Two hours away from Indian Wells is the city of Compton, California, which is just south of downtown Los Angeles. Compton is where Richard Williams and Orosine Price decided as the location for where they'd raise Venus and Serena. Compton is the opposite of Indian Wells. While presidents were playing golf, if you look up headlines from the LA Times in the late 80s and early 90s, you'll find endless articles about gang violence, civil unrest, and how, when looking at the FBI's annual report of crime statistics, Compton was often ranked as one of the most dangerous cities in the country. The Williams sisters' father, Richard Williams, apparently knew the danger and chose to move the family to Compton from Louisiana. According to Richard, he could have afforded having the girls grow up elsewhere, but, quote, there was no place in the world that was rougher than Compton. The ghetto will make you rough, it will make you tough, it will make you strong. And so that's why I went to Compton with them. Richard is a character worthy of his own podcast episode or podcast series. I don't know, I'd be open to anything. And how he came to decide that his daughters should play tennis is something you couldn't make up. It was the late 1970s. Richard was watching a match in which an announcer mentioned that the women's 1978 French Open champion had made $40,000 in one week of tournament play. This was more than Richard had made all year, and so the next morning, he went on a search to confirm this was true, that female tennis players could make that much money. Turns out it was true. And so, as the story goes, he returned home and said to his wife, we need to make two kids and make them into tennis superstars. The only issue, or one issue, was that Richard knew nothing about the game. So he bought some books, watched tennis as much as he could, and became a student, and soon an expert of sorts. He starts taking the whole family to the local tennis courts. He begins training not just Venus and Serena, but their other sisters as well. And this isn't like those gorgeous hard courts at the IMG Academy on the waters of Western Florida, or the beachfront clay courts at the variety of tennis academies in Spain. These are tennis courts in Compton, where tennis isn't something many people play. In fact, at the time, the tennis courts are mostly an area to dump leftover syringes, glass bottles, and other trash. But Richard doesn't care, and he takes a unique approach. And by most accounts, an obsessive approach. Not in a bad way, but he treats his daughters, Venus and Serena, as the generational players they'd become. Richard has them on a routine that could match many professionals. Yes, the greats normally begin tennis at an early age, but not like this. While many young players were practicing their shots, lobs, or serves, Richard also has his daughters just outside of the court. Serena recalls her dad telling them that pitchers had the best arms, so the girls would throw baseballs and footballs to simulate a forward-throwing motion and build muscle. Sometimes he'd bring upwards of a hundred old tennis rackets, and the girls would be chucking the rackets one after another as far as they could. He also would tell the girls that boxers had the best feet. So when they weren't moving their feet like he wanted them to in practice, he had a professional boxer come to a nearby sand pit and box with the girls. Richard also wanted to put his daughters in every conceivable scenario. 
at one point telling an opponent to cheat throughout the match so that Venus had to sort out how to react. Richard went on to write a 78-page manifesto as to how his daughters would attain greatness. But he also ensures that tennis didn't get in the way of schoolwork. All of his daughters learn ballet, jazz, taekwondo, different languages. He always wants to make them tougher and smarter. So Richard Williams pulls off two types of training, physical and mental. He prepares his daughters on both fronts. Richard forced his daughters to believe tennis fame was inevitable. They were quite literally born to do this. For years, every single day, he had them write down what it would look like when they took center stage. He had them believe it was a foregone conclusion. And if you listen close enough to old videos, you hear him telling the four- and five-year-old daughters to imagine. Listen to this very quick clip of him telling Serena to picture hitting a U.S. Open winner. Right here. Right here at the U.S. Open. This is you. Right there. Good service motion. That's you. Boom! When a prominent coach from Florida is in California and sees Venus play, he looks at Richard and says, you may have the next Michael Jordan of tennis. No, Richard responds, I have the next two, referring to Venus and Serena. Richard Williams, at least for me, is the very definition of a visionary. He shoots endless videos of his daughters playing, again at just four and five years old, sending these videos to the elite tennis academies in Florida and elsewhere. You can go on YouTube and watch him filming the girls playing, explaining to whomever is listening on the other side why his kids are the best. You can see that serve look very good, hopefully. Uh, they're going to serve about five or ten more balls for you. And uh, great serve. Thank you, Daddy. Richard may have been the only person in the world that knew he was raising two of the greatest tennis players ever. But before long, the world started to catch on. And just as they did, cheating accusations began to surface. Maybe this was all too good to be true. So if you've listened to prior episodes, I'm a big fan of taking care of my mind, or (laughs) at least trying to. In other words, mental health. And What I've kind of found interesting is people spend so much time at the gym and oftentimes quite a bit of money, which is great. But then for some reason, taking care of your mind is seen still as sort of taboo. And why? Better place your mind is in, I think better place your body is in, better your relationships are, everything. And one thing that's really helped me, and I've tried a lot of different things, is this app called Calm. And I'm genuinely excited that We've partnered with them. They're the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. They're actually named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Wow. If you head to calm.com backslash WRH for what really happened, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. You can do it for only a few minutes, for 10 minutes. I'd say just try it and see where it takes you. It also helps me go to sleep. They have, and don't laugh because it really is effective for people like me who have racing minds, but they have over 100 soothing tales, essentially bedtime stories that have helped me fall asleep. A lot of times when I'm researching or writing episodes, I'll also play different background noises they have. It is really effective. 
So for a limited time, What Really Happened listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com backslash WRH. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com backslash WRH. That's C-A-L-M dot C-O-M slash W-R-H. W-R-H, obviously, for what really happened. Richard travels around Los Angeles, trying to convince country clubs to give him and the kids a discounted membership, or at the very least, free tennis balls to play with. It's important to remember how Richard was teaching a sport he was learning at the same time. Now, where did Richard get this determination? He grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. Richard himself recalled one time when, quote, six or seven guys held me down and they took a nail that goes on a cross tie and nailed it right into my leg because I wouldn't call them Mr. And I didn't think it was fair for me to call no one Mr. when they would call me boy or the N-word and were always trying to kill me. Richard prevailed, made it out of Louisiana, and also proved to many doubters that his daughters had the goods to play tennis. A renowned coach out of Florida, Richard Macy, saw the Williams sisters, believed in their potential, and helped move the family to Florida, perhaps the mecca for youth tennis. But as the sisters got better and more attention, Macy was dropped. Many have accused Richard of forgetting somebody that helped get his family to Florida, get Richard a job in Florida, and help the Williams sisters take the next step in their game. Leaving Macy behind didn't help Richard with the tennis establishment. And then there was his antics, which seemed to make things a lot worse. He'd hold signs up during matches, encouraging his daughters, and according to opponents, would become an unfair distraction. Many said he was unable to control himself, always saying something to get more attention. Australian player Pat Cash said that Richard had a, quote, unhealthy influence over their careers and used dubious tactics while they were playing. Cash said that Richard had held up signs during Venus's Wimbledon final against Lindsay Davenport in 2000. It put the opponent off. It's blatant advertising and it was cheating. I cannot believe they got away with this stuff, Cash said. Charlie Bricht, a Sun Centennial writer, added in an ESPN documentary that Richard had a, quote, compulsive need to be in the spotlight at a time when he needs to step back and get out of the way. Others have said Richard wasn't just being loud to be loud. Said Kevin Davis, a family agent and legal advisor, in an interview with Sports Illustrated, quote, there is a method to his madness. Everything he says is very well thought out and intends a certain result. 99 times out of 100, he gets that result. Don't ever underestimate Richard. In that same SI article, Richard said, you have to have major media. I love to have the media bash me. You know why? You do something good and save someone's life, no one cares. You want to be famous? Get some bad news. He added, most people don't know nothing about me. Because when I'm talking, I always talk like I'm stupid. I prefer people to think I'm stupid. So at this point, I knew it was time to get in touch with somebody who was actually there at Indian Wells on that day. Among others, I reached out to Selena Roberts. She's covered tennis for nearly 30 years and has written for the New York Times and Sports Illustrated. 
Before getting to what happened, we talked a bit about Richard and how his actions in the limelight had mixed results. I think as as much as Richard kind of gets credit for being a bit of the the sort of the the, the circus master in some ways by you know saying things and also distracting pressure from them. I think part of that was the plan too. I'm going to say something outrageous and crazy, and it'll take the pressure off them because it'll put the focus on me. Not always sure that that worked out well. Sometimes they had an answer, you know, for some of the things that he said. But it'd be grossly unfair to say all of this and not mention what journalists and others routinely say in interviews or books, that Richard is a genius and he loves his kids. Said Jimmy Roberts of NBC Sports, quote, one of the most eccentric people I've ever met, but I also think he's one of the most committed parents that you can ever imagine. Even Richard Macy would go on to say, quote, Richard and I had ups and downs over a lot of things. But he's always been an incredible father to those two girls. If he wanted more money, he could have had them playing more. But I can remember 50 times when he called off practice because Venus's grades were down. They'd be in my office studying French. Serena Williams, looking back on it, jokingly said in a 2013 documentary, Venus vs. Serena, that her father told her to be number one in the world, adding, quote, I was brainwashed. Although she laughs while saying it, Looking back on all of this, Richard's approach doesn't feel that far off from brainwashing. And so, could it be that he told Venus to drop out at Indian Wells? To let Serena win? And if so, why? Well, so to take a step back, remember that at the time, Venus is better than Serena, and has been since they started playing tennis. Venus is tall, quick, and graceful. While it takes most players several steps to get from one side of the court to the other, it seems more of like a hop for Venus. The two play around the world, but it is this one particular tournament, Indian Wells, that is far more personal and far more meaningful for Serena. So I can account for three reasons. One, Serena won her first professional singles match near Indian Wells at La Costa even returning about a year later to take a picture of herself on the court. It has that sentimental value, like the location of your first kiss. Second, Indian Wells is also where Serena, at 17 years old, beat Steffi Graf, one of the best players of all time, in an exhilarating three sets. Afterwards, Serena said, quote, This is the biggest tournament I've ever won. I know that I can win the big ones now. And three, If you're an American professional basketball, baseball, or football player, there's no question the top league you play in is in America. It's where you play nearly all of your games, maybe outside of exhibition matches, a special overseas game, or the Olympics. But in tennis, you play all over the world. The top tournaments are in New York, Australia, Paris, and England. And since Serena Williams grew up only two hours from Indian Wells, this is really a local tournament for her. Family, friends, old neighbors can come and see her. It's as much of a home game as she can get. And so between this location and her history of success in the area, Serena would say with great sincerity, I lived for Indian Wells. Now, on top of all of this, Indian Wells is considered an important tournament in the women's tennis world. It's a tier below the four major tournaments, and it's classified as a premier mandatory tournament. It holds particular significance in player rankings, not to mention prize money. 
What has been well documented is that the Williams sisters hate playing each other. So much so that outside of the crucial tennis tournaments, the Williams sisters try to avoid playing in the same tournaments so that they can almost completely avoid playing each other. Serena has said in my research hundreds of times that when Venus loses, it feels like she's losing also. And it all stems from not just being sisters, but really lifelong best friends. Serena has said, what didn't I do to copy Venus when I was young? Her favorite color was my favorite color. Her favorite animal was my favorite animal. The two shared a bedroom growing up in Compton and up until only a few years ago, also shared a home in Florida. But because they are so good, when they are in the same tournaments, they usually advance to the point where they end up being the one that takes out the other. And this isn't like other professional athletes who have siblings who they play against. There are no teams here. This is one-on-one. Imagine if we saw Tiger Woods up against a brother of his. This is personal, and in a way that makes the tension feel kind of unfortunate, not exhilarating. And for Serena, there is one thing she really despises. If her love for her sister Venus is on one side of the spectrum, her hatred for losing tennis matches is on the other. Said former New York Times writer Selena Roberts. I had at least gotten to know Serena uh, a bit as a tennis player and as sort of her mindset is that Serena hates losing more than anybody I've ever covered. Like, detest it. Hates it. I spoke with former professional player James Blake who at one point was the fourth-ranked men's tennis player in the world. Me, personally, I've gotten to meet some of my idols. Michael Jordan was my idol growing up, and I never met anyone more competitive than him, and I've never met anyone more competitive than Serena. Those two are one and the same in my book with how uh, they have the athleticism, but they also have that drive and that absolute killer instinct um, that never goes away. Their father, Richard Williams, adds to this. Serena hate losing. If anything bothers Serena, it's to lose. With all of this in mind, we arrive back at Indian Wells, a premier tournament, and in 2001, the semifinal match, in which the sisters were set to play one another. It was Thursday, and Serena is warming up. Fans and commentators await. But Venus still hasn't come out, and then it happens. Four minutes before those 14,000 people are about to witness history, the announcer takes center court. The semifinals match is not happening. Venus is injured, and so as a result, Serena automatically moves on to the finals to be played the following night. Serena will go up against Belgian Kim Kleisters. As I mentioned earlier, nobody can believe Venus isn't playing. Elena, the player who suggested this would happen only two days prior, now en route home after losing, is probably rolling her eyes. Told ya. Officials at Indian Wells say dropping out four minutes before a match shows a lack of common courtesy. After all, fans have traveled from all over the state, likely the world, to this desert that is hard to get to. They've bought tickets, sat and waited in the heat, only to be told there's nothing to watch. People now believe that Elena was right, and it has more to do, a lot more to do, than simply Venus not playing. First is the Williams sisters' denials to any questions of their father telling Venus not to play. 
I call this part one, pounding the table in anger. The day after Venus drops out, the LA Times reports on her walking into the press conference afterwards. Quote, Venus walked in, head held high, smiling defiantly. She wore long purple pants. She didn't limp. Another chapter in the Williams family circus was taking place. Venus was Tefloning the press. The writer continues, If these situations are truly just happenstance, if Venus's knee truly did just get sore in time for her match with Serena, if all of this is just the product of a bunch of jealous competitors on the women's tour and a bunch of dopes with overactive curiosity glands, then why don't the Williamses set the record straight? When they are asked about the rumor and innuendo that constantly swirl around them, they respond with smirks and half-hearted denials. They deny, but with less than normal conviction, even anger one would expect in the face of such serious issues. How about pounding on the table and saying it ain't so? How about some tears, some anger? Well, I can't help but say a strong conviction when denying something, whether it's pounding your fist on the table or wagging your finger at the press, doesn't really mean much. How many public figures, whether it's politicians denying ethics violations or athletes lying about steroid use, have reheard strongly deny wrongdoing only for it to turn out they were, unfortunately, lying? But I do understand what the columnist is saying. Why the smiles when denying the accusation? Maybe you don't need to yell, but wouldn't such an allegation, an allegation of the greatest crime one can make in sports, make you upset? What I've been surprised by in my research is that Venus Williams, by most accounts, is shy. Very shy. When you're in the public eye from pretty much 16 years old onwards and able to smile while giving autographs, talk to the press, and perform well in commercial shoots, shy may be hard to believe, but as journalist Robin Roberts once put it, Venus is painfully shy. And so denials from a painfully shy person oftentimes comes across a certain way. I found this quote, which I kind of like, from well-known writer and director Joe Straczynski. Talking about himself, Joe said, I'm extremely shy and quiet, almost painfully shy. People misinterpret that as being above it all or not interested. And so I think when somebody is one of the best athletes in the world and is shy, it can come across as ego. On top of this, Venus didn't always attend tournaments, which was different. Ben Rothenberg, who writes about tennis for the New York Times and hosts the NCR Tennis Podcast, added the following. Venus just withdrew from a lot of tournaments, and she was a player who was highly talked about and one of the most, she and her sister, and Venus especially, because Venus was the higher ranked and considered better player for the early parts of their career. Um, she was a bit of an enigma, and she would frequently go AWOL um, from tour, um, and without, you know, and her father um, sort of... In, intentionally kept things pretty opaque in terms of what her injury situation was or whatever else was happening in her career. They were always, he was always sort of trying to stoke uh, whispers that they were going to retire soon. They didn't need tennis. They would only be in the sport temporarily, which turned out to be incredibly wrong because they're both still here in 2018. Um, but yeah, but I think there definitely was a sense that they were that Venus, maybe more than Serena, and she did have a couple real injury concerns uh, during those years. But there was a sense, yeah, that they were both relatively amoebas on, you know, being able to stick to the schedule of the tour and show up 
at every tournament that the tour hoped they would. Um, they were not always as, they didn't have perfect attendance records, let's put it that way. This led to publications like Sports Illustrated saying things like, no important black tennis player, not Althea Gibson, Arthur Ashe, Zena Garrison, or Mal Washington, ever carried himself or herself with the casual sense of entitlement that envelops Venus and Serena. But is it entitlement? I don't know. The Williams sisters clearly came from a different background than many in tennis and had a father that found himself at the center of attention. They had a different approach to doing things. And all of this talk about Richard Williams got me to realize I was coming up painfully short in understanding more about the Williams sisters' mother. And as it turns out, the unsung hero. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to the Williams sisters' mom, Oracine Price. It is Oracine, who trained mostly with Serena while they were kids, as Richard stuck with Venus. Apparently, Richard couldn't handle Serena and would say, she crazy. Oracine has said she made Serena believe in herself and believe that she could get any ball. Serena has gone on to say that, my dad was the body, my mom the spine. Neither, in terms of growing up playing tennis, could exist without the other. The teamwork was unbelievable. Oracine had one core belief that she instilled in both children, which was to always face anger or hostility with a calm demeanor, especially off the court. Says Oracine, it's like the Bible says, if someone is talking bad about you, be happy. Oracine's approach and what her daughters learned from her explains so much. It explains all of the misunderstandings when it comes to people not getting why the Williams sisters' denials aren't brusque or angry or loud. It turns out it's, it's not that complicated. They just weren't raised that way. What is a bit more complicated, at least at first, is this tightrope of when Serena and her sister are supposed to show anger. Anger in press conferences, great, yes, show us you care. Anger during a match, and not so much. And maybe that's what you sign up for when playing professional tennis or professional sports. But regardless, at least the LA Times writer is saying he wants Venus to be pounding on the table or show some tears, or respond in anger. But this request for anger is restricted because people most definitely don't want that anger or passion on the court. In 2009, Serena Williams was playing in the U.S. Open semifinals, once again against Kim Kleisters. Kleisters was up and a few points away from the win. Serena was hitting her second serve of the point, so she had to get the ball in, but when serving, she gets called for a foot fault, meaning a lines judge said Serena stepped on the line while serving and thus loses the point. Players, tennis journalists all agree it's a rare call to make and entirely unheard of to call at the end of a match. On top of this, it also just didn't look like a foot fault. So Kleisters wins the point, and it gives Kleisters two match points, two chances to win and move on to the U.S. Open Finals. Serena can't believe the call and walks over to the judge and yells. Although hard to fully confirm, 
she says a few things, including some version of, I'm going to shove this fucking ball down your fucking throat. The line's judge makes eye contact with the head referee and they decide Serena, as the rules indicate, will lose the point and thus the match. Serena can't believe it, much less the accusation. In my research, I kept inadvertently finding myself seeing articles about this match because it was, just like Indian Wells, Serena versus Kim Clijsters. So searches of the two of them playing each other oftentimes lands you at their Indian Wells match and their U.S. Open match. And while reading about this infamous U.S. Open match, I happened to read a New York Times article about how it all went down. And... I was really surprised. They say, quote, Serena Williams became unhinged in a shocking display of vitriol and profanity toward a line judge at the most inopportune time Saturday night. Williams had turned what had been a scintillating women's match into an ugly and improbable spectacle that gave Kleisters an unseated wildcard entry, making a joyful return to Grand Slam tennis, a 6-4-7-5 victory she could not even celebrate. Kleisters, a 26-year-old from Belgium who is the mother of a toddler, had frustrated and dominated Williams all night. After Kleisters won the first set, Williams slammed her racket to the court twice, mangling the frame in disgust. She walked to her chair, whacking the net with her racket on the way, and earned a warning for racket abuse. Kleisters stayed composed. Now, I don't know about you, but for me... Calling it ugly and an improbable spectacle, shocking, and Serena being unhinged seems like a long list of adjectives to describe a player losing their cool. And going out of your way to say Kleisters, who is the mother of a toddler, what does that have anything to do with it? Is her child now scarred? Come on now. To see the other side of things, tennis does have a long tradition of really abiding by etiquette. I talked about this with Ben Rothenberg. I think tennis was seen as a sport being very genteel, very humble, has British origins. And, you know, Wimbledon is all about just sort of being polite and kind and, and quiet and demure and playing for sort of the amusement of the aristocracy and not speaking up or making too much noise. Ben makes what is probably an obvious point for tennis players. This isn't football or basketball. Yelling isn't exactly the norm. I thought, well, and I should say Ben pointed this out as well, Are there other players in tennis who've, you know, lost their cool? This leads me to part two. Who is pounding the table in anger? You have an old rule of anger. No mistakes whatsoever. Sick and stuff, please. Answer my question! The question, jerk! You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! For those not so into tennis, John McEnroe is one of the best men's tennis players in history. Known mostly for his great play in the late 1970s and early 80s, he won seven Grand Slams, 77 singles tournaments, and 78 doubles titles. 
which is the highest men's combined total of the Open Era. Not only this, but he's arguably the best color commentator in professional men's tennis. A combination of astute observation and no-holds-barred, call-it-like-I-see-it scrutiny. And in full disclosure, I absolutely enjoy a match much more when he's the one commentating. In fact, McEnroe was commentating in that semifinals match at the U.S. Open and came to Serena's defense, or really just saying what seemed accurate in regards to that damn foot fault. No There's no evidence. foot fault. There's not, I mean, you definitely do not see a foot fault there. You can't call that there. Now, McEnroe has also gotten in trouble for saying things about Serena that I think seem unnecessary. And for some reason, he doesn't apologize for them. And usually what he says, I think, happens to be during the same time he's selling a book. So that's kind of BS. But outside of commentating and winning, Johnny Mac is probably best known for his temper during his playing days. When he disagreed with the call, he let the umpires know. Or he'd say things like this. Or this. You're a disgrace, and everyone here is a disgrace. You can't get a call to even this far outright. It's absolutely unacceptable. Or this. You never worked on a court again. You understand me? You're pathetic, you know that? You are the worst umpire that I've ever seen in my life. You're never going to work another match five minutes. Or this. Johnny Mac made money off of his temper. In a 2006 commercial for National Car Rental, after finding out about a deal, he yells, Any car? You cannot be serious! There are quite a few examples of commercials, ads, you name it, with McEnroe using that famous temper to his financial advantage. And to be clear, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Then there is the inspiration his temper has provided, quite literally. Said the Pacific Standard, there's almost something Shakespearean in a McEnroe breakdown. Professional actors have studied it, analyzing his tormented mannerisms and intonations frame by frame. Tom Hulse did so before playing Mozart in Amadeus. Ian McKellen did the same thing when he played Coriolanus. The Pacific Standard article continues when analyzing an old McEnroe meltdown, saying, quote, McEnroe, now moving in circles like he's feral, smacks a ball into the bleachers at a loudmouth fan before stepping to the service line and preparing for his serve. He looks tortured. He is tortured. He's down 1-6-2-3. The crowd goes silent. McEnroe leads forward, tosses the ball skyward, arches backward limbo-like, and then uncoils. A machine. The serve is brilliant. The article prefaces why it then will discuss McEnroe going bonkers over a bad call in Sweden, saying, quote, It deserves a revisitation because, among other things, it offers rare insight into the raw emotion that marks the inevitable pain of being great. So here's the thing. Every one of my friends is either married or getting married, and it's really annoying. I go to each wedding, pretty much. I smile, but it's sickening. I'm there alone, me and myself. I don't really drink. So with a few exceptions, it's usually my sober self. The one thing I'll say about these weddings is that I do enjoy the gift part, like giving my friends and and their significant others a gift. I don't really do 
gifts per se, though. I write letters. I don't want to get somebody a coffee machine. They can get that on their own. I want to get them a really thought out personal letter, you know? So maybe that's a little cheesy, but I like to do it that way. And while I spend considerable time drafting and then writing these wedding letters, I don't spend any time actually sending them because stamps.com makes it really easy. You can buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package, all available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You just click, print, mail, and you're done. Stamps.com even sends you a digital scale. So right now, you can use WRH for this special offer. It's a four-week trial. It includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WRH. That's Stamps.com. Enter WRH. It seems like when McEnroe goes crazy, it's brilliant. And when Serena goes crazy, she's petulant. Now, my comparison here isn't to hate on Johnny Mac. He actually once took a photo with my brother, which was nice of him. Well, he wasn't in the best mood. But anyway, he's done a lot for the game and the future of the game. My point in comparing the two is to show the difference in interpretation. Now, what does this have to do with Indian Wells and what really happened? The thing is, whether staring down sexism or racism, the Williams sisters rarely take the bait, if ever. They don't charge back. They kind of just rise above it. It's the Orsine Wells approach. So you can't really say that they are half-hearted denials. It's not how they were brought up. So in my opinion, Serena and Venus seem a bit stuck. They're either too angry or too soft. And in a game of etiquette, their pride seems off-putting to many. Now, all of this will not ultimately decide whether they did in fact cheat at Indian Wells. I want to stick to the facts. But circumstances are vital. After the press conference with Venus and Serena, later in the night, the tournament director of Indian Wells says, quote, I only wish she had at least gone out and given it a try. This hurts the game of tennis more than the individual tournament. He goes on to say that he had heard about the development like everyone else, through the PA system, minutes before the match. But this account is disputed by Serena in her book On the Line, in which she talks about what happened, and in this part of the book, the match her sister Venus played before dropping out. It was a tough match, mostly because it was ridiculously hot. That's the one knock on Indian Wells. It's out in the desert, and it can get really, really hot, Although usually in March, it's not that bad. On this day, though, Venus came down with heat exhaustion. She hurt her knee during the match, too. The book continues, and this is a long portion from the book that I'll read, but it's interesting. Serena is talking about the day she and Venus were set to play. When we got to the stadium on the morning of the semifinal, Venus checked in with the tour trainer and told him she didn't think she could play. She couldn't have done anything before that, and besides, she was hoping to be able to compete. A lot of times you go to bed in a lot of pain, and you wake up in a lot less pain, and you're able to play. She wanted to give her body a chance to respond, but when she woke up on the morning of the match, she knew she was in no shape to play a semifinal in a Tier 1 tour event. Her knee was giving her too much trouble. She was completely upfront about it. She didn't want to withdraw, 
but she believed she had no choice. Daddy tended to leave it to us to listen to our own bodies. Game day decisions like whether or not we were fit to play were pretty much ours to make, so it was Venus's call. That is, it was Venus's call until it wasn't. See, the way it works on the Women's Tennis Association Tour is that the tournament trainer consults with the tournament director on all significant injuries. At least, that's how it's supposed to work. If there's a possibility that a player won't be able to compete in her next match, they work it out so that they can reschedule another match in its place. They'll slot in a doubles match or a junior match or maybe relocate a match from one of the other courts. It happens a lot, so they have all these backup plans in place, and usually no one thinks anything of it if someone has to pull out. It's a shame, but it happens. It's part of the game. The key, though, is you have to make this kind of decision in a timely manner. The closer you get to your scheduled start time, the less understanding the crowd and the tournament organizers are likely to be. But on this day, with the two of us scheduled to go at it in such a big match, no one wanted to see Venus pull out. The tournament director didn't want it. The fans didn't want it. The sponsors didn't want it. Venus and I certainly didn't want it. There was buzz, hype, drama, and all of that. People said it was good for the game, a match like this. But at the same time, Venus felt strongly that she couldn't play. She knew her body. She knew she wasn't able to go at anything close to full strength. More than that, she didn't want to risk a more serious injury with three majors coming up in just a few months. No doubt about it, there was a lot riding on this one decision, and Venus was in a difficult spot. If she was an older, more established player, she might have been a little more forceful about the situation. She might have bypassed the trainer and gone straight to the director. But she was a relative newcomer, and the rules said she had to get the trainer's approval before making a withdrawal, so for hours and hours, that was what she tried to do. And for hours and hours, she got a kind of stiff arm from the trainer, who kept telling her to hold off on making any kind of final decision. It's also important to note, as Joel Drucker pointed out in a telling and really well-contextualized 2009 ESPN article, Venus was 20 and Serena was 19 at the time. We're talking about people who couldn't even legally drink yet. Serena would go on to say she understood why the crowd was upset. I would have been mad too if I paid my money and gone to all the hassle and hustle of getting to the stadium. Serena said in her book, I sat there and thought, what advantage? What did either one of us have to gain by any of this? In fact, the walkover, as in Venus dropping out, actually cost me points in the rankings. Because if Venus had actually tried to play for a couple games before withdrawing, those points would have come my way. I reached out to Indian Wells for comment or to be interviewed, but they didn't respond. Regardless, as this hectic day is coming to an end and people have digested that this semifinals match just wasn't in the cards, people are taking some deep breaths. Sure, it wasn't fun for anyone, but maybe it's time to move on. So it's the next day, Friday. Time to anticipate the big finals match between Serena and Kim Kleisters. And then, just as the scriptwriting gods would want it, an extraordinary article comes out that people to this day still reference. Even if you just read the headline and what was in bold, you'd get the gist. Dad ordered Serena to lose. Tennis scandal rocks family's $160 million empire. 
Some don't believe the article came out that Friday, but regardless, it did come out right around this time of Venus dropping out. So it only amplifies what Elena had said. It adds to the narrative. When the sisters do play, the matches are fixed. And this article has crucial components to it that make it newsworthy. There are two named sources who say Richard told them how he ordered Serena to lose to Venus at Wimbledon. One is a cousin of the sisters, and the other is Richard Williams' ex-girlfriend. So I'll let you decide what you make of that. When I speak with reporters, many point to this article that quotes these two people on the record saying Richard fixed the matches. Despite it being an ex of Richard's and a cousin who one wouldn't necessarily think is on the inside, they do go on the record. And in journalism, that's a big deal. But what I find extraordinary is that this quote-unquote article comes from the National Enquirer. And the National Enquirer pays people to talk. And with enough money, you can get just about anybody to say anything. So without going on and on about this, these two people who are quoted, I wouldn't consider reliable even if it wasn't the National Enquirer. On a side note, it's fascinating how much the National Enquirer seems to hide behind these articles. While I kept hearing people mention the article, I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find the full article online. I couldn't track down the reporters that wrote the article. Hard to even get their emails. Nothing. I eventually had to buy it online and have an old copy sent to me. For context, I'm very lucky and have some great resources and databases and can find relatively easily old papers dating back a century from all parts of the world. The fact that I couldn't find this article? Come on now. Finally, it's Saturday. Hopefully, hopefully it's time for everything to move on. At about 6 p.m., Serena Williams takes the court. People will cheer her entrance and the match will finally lift off. Except when she takes the court, this happens. American crowd booing an American family and you have to say that it does smack of a little bit of racism and then Richard and Venus Williams walk down to their seats by the court to watch the match and this happens just moments ago more drama as Venus and Richard Williams walk down and here's the crowd again Very tense situation, Mary Jo. I've never seen anything like this in a tennis Neither have I. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible that the crowd booed for so long. Richard is struck by this all, and so he raises his arm and puts his fist up, a la the 1968 Olympics. Richard Williams will go on to say that about a dozen fans used a racial slur directed at him and Venus as they walked to their seats. He also says he heard someone say, quote, I wish it were 75 read skin you alive. But reporters question this. I think there are two reasons. One, most of the reporters are white. And two, Richard Williams at this point is well known for making things sound more extreme than they are. Curry Kirkpatrick from ESPN the magazine put it this way. 
I think Richard has cried wolf so many times that now if it's happening, nobody is believing him anymore. But it's also worth bearing in mind who Richard is and where he's from. Perhaps Charles Elmore from the Palm Beach Post put it best. At that moment, Richard Williams was back in Compton when he would take his daughters to tennis tournaments. The looks in their faces told him, you don't belong here. Who are you? Selena Roberts, who was there, puts things in context. He heard uh, racial slurs as he was walking down. Um, I didn't find that. It wasn't around us where we were on the press side. Um, And that's not to say that it didn't happen, but we couldn't find anybody in trying to interview people that were in those sections. Um, Couldn't find that. Um, But I don't know. I mean, when you are enduring a lot of, of hostility, uh, you know, I'm not to say I would never say, oh, it never happened because just because we didn't find it, um, you don't often have people raise their hand and say, hey, I'm the racist here. So so it's not a surprise that we didn't find somebody who admitted to saying it. On the very first point, which Kleisters wins, the crowd erupts as if she won the match. This continues for the entire match. In an interesting side note, one person who did take to Serena was Kim Kleisters, who Serena played against in that U.S. Open final in which she lost her cool and at this infamous finals match at Indian Wells, said Selena Roberts. I think they had a fondness for each other and she was playing her friend and um, was rattled as well by, by the response um, because every ball that Serena hit to the net was cheered and she was booed in between points and um, I've never seen anything like it. And, and I covered sports for um, in the print world for almost 30 years, and I'd never seen anything like it. Said one of Serena's sisters, you're in your home state, where you're from, a couple hours south of Compton, and you're being booed, and the person they're cheering is Belgian. Regardless of what Richard said, it does seem to me in my research that people have forgotten that Serena Williams said in her book and in a documentary about her, quote, someone called me the N-bomb. I didn't pray to win. I prayed to get through it. Serena does win. And when she hits the winning shot, And then as she approaches her dad and sister, the boos suddenly get even louder. Went over to hug her father and her sister. And then when receiving the championship award, Serena says this to the fans as they boo. And I would like to thank everyone that supported me. And if you didn't, I love you guys anyway. Thank you. This is classic Williams. Serena is getting booed after winning, and she is literally thanking the fans for their support, something a daughter does when raised by Orsine Price. But the endless booing, the racial slurs that her family heard when entering the stadium that day, will not be forgotten. Serena says she'll never play there again. Vox Media has done a great deal of reporting on the racism the Williams sisters have faced throughout their lives, continuing to this day. 
There's a 2005 Telegraph article in which a writer says, Generally, I'm all for chunky sports stars. But tennis requires a mobility Serena cannot hope to achieve while lugging around breasts that are registered to vote in a different U.S. state from the rest of her. At the 2007 Sony Erickson Championship in Miami, a heckler was ejected from the stands after yelling at Williams, that's the way to do it, hit the net like any Negro would. Sports writer Jason Whitlock, who I invited on the show and he declined, said in a 2009 Fox Sports column that Serena shouldn't have chosen to smother her beauty in an unsightly layer of thick, muscled blubber. He went on to say that, quote, I'm not fundamentally opposed to junk in the trunk, although my preference is a stuffed onion over an oozing pumpkin. This is a published article by a journalist. And then aside from fans and journalists, there is the professional tennis community. In 2014, former Russian player and current coach Shamil Tarpashev called the Williams sisters brothers, adding, it's frightening when you look at them. Luckily, we have people like J.K. Rowling, who tweeted the following after seeing a slur directed at Serena Williams on her timeline. A Twitter account that went by at D-I-E-G-T-R-I-S-T-A-N-8 said, Serena was, quote, built like a man. To which Rowling tweeted back, yeah, my husband looks just like that in a dress. You're an idiot. Even reporters, maybe skeptical at first that racism was still so rampant, have been surprised. Although from a few years back, I saw an interview from the great Karen Krause, a reporter from the New York Times, who said, to this day, I can't write a story about Venus or Serena without receiving just hateful, hate-spewed messages. And I shudder to think of some of the things they must be receiving. I spoke some more with James Blake, again once ranked fourth in the world in men's tennis and born to an African-American father, and a British mother. He spoke of the racism he faced. There was a serious time when uh, we had to actually get the FBI involved because there were um, death threats uh, to my parents' workplaces. And when I first had success, um, it was they, they found out where my parents worked, which was scary, and called my mom and uh, and called her an N-word lover and. That she's gonna, you know, she needs me to stop playing, or else they're gonna bomb her play, her office and his office. I've tried to put it out of my mind as much as possible, put it in the hands of the FBI. They took care of it and let us know that the threat had been taken care of, and we were okay to go back to work. Finally, in terms of this question on race, it's helpful to follow the money. Serena by 2013 had won 20 Grand Slam singles titles and 13 Grand Slam doubles titles. The two top-ranked players in the world were Serena and Maria Sharapova. Serena held a 17-2 lifetime record against Sharapova. Yet according to the Forbes 2014 ranking of the richest athletes in the world, Sharapova earned $22 million in endorsements, and Serena earned $11 million in endorsements. So as Forbes points out, Serena has four times as many single slams compared to Maria, but Maria Sharapova is making double the amount. In fact, Sharapova made more in endorsements than Serena for 11 years, up until 2016, when Serena's brilliance could no longer be underestimated, or so I thought. As it turns out, in 2016, 
Williams did finally overtake Sharapova in endorsement money because in March of that year, Sharapova failed a drug test for doping. Now, what I find really interesting is how the Williams sisters have handled racial prejudice, how they handled being black women in a mostly white sport. First off, they didn't back away from their race or go out of their way to try and fit in. As kids coming up through the tennis ranks and becoming worldwide celebrities, the sisters would wear beads in their hair. Beads, for those that don't know, are among the most important symbols in African culture, past and present. African beads, Jewels of a Continent by Evelyn C. Mack, which is an amazing book, by the way, reveals just how much beads mean to African culture, pride, beauty, power, and identity. During the slave trade, Africans were sold in exchange for beads. And so whose idea was it for the sisters to wear beads? Of course, Orsine Price. The Williams family didn't lean away from being black. Chris Rock remarked, the beads made them black, black, black. So the Williams sisters wearing beads wasn't just some style thing to make their hair different and cool. Orsine continued, I schooled the girls on that N-word issue. I said you might get called that, and if you do, just say thank you. I love it. You know, I'm so sick of people saying the N-word. Forget it. It's what you are. Say it. Go on. Eventually, when they see it doesn't bother you, they'll leave it alone. I can't wait for someone to say it. I've been planning on it. She wanted her daughters to be proud of who they were. Now, despite all of this... For those believing this was a conspiracy, it works. Because Serena did win Indian Wells. She beat Kim Clijsters. After understanding best I could about what happened, learning from a wide array of people to interviews to newspaper databases, I went through my notes compiled over a few months to see what was left in terms of anything that could be an accusation that was fair. Not even necessarily a smoking gun, but something that proves this was fixed. After unraveling a lot of what is to really just love about Serena, the intent here is to keep my blinders on and stick to the facts. I've made some mistakes in my personal life. On a date with a Brazilian woman, I told her I needed to brush up on my Brazilian. I'm an idiot, not smart. On a date with an extremely smart woman who I couldn't believe I had a chance to even meet, I got nervous, started talking about how clouds are underrated, that clouds, like clouds in the air, are really interesting. No idea what that means. Idiot. Not smart. I've also made some mistakes on the work front. A 27-years-old scholastic offered me a book deal to write an autobiography. I spent a lot of time on it. it. It was pretty good, I thought. So did my parents. But if sales are any indication, nobody else did. Damn it, Jenks. Not smart. What I really wish I had was someone who could say, dude, you're 27, put your ego in check. Sometimes, and I think this is true, you really don't want yes people. You want people that know context and circumstances and will tell you what you need to hear. Um, and sometimes that's harder to do. And so here we go. Here's, here's the transition. You ready for this? You know what is smart? Going to ziprecruiter.com slash WRH to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology scans 
thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the United States. And this rating does come from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, my listeners, all of you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ziprecruiter.com slash WRH, ziprecruiter.com slash WRH for what really happened. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I don't know, frankly, how someone isn't rooting for Serena Williams. At this point in my process, I am. But with all that said, here are a few facts that could resonate in terms of the Williams sisters and their father cheating. One, allow one of them to get the rest so that when they play in the finals, they're well-rested and ready to go. But after asking some tennis professionals and experts, that also messes with your routine and so doesn't make much sense. Two, what most don't bring up as a reason is that Richard knew Serena loved Indian Wells. So maybe let her win this match that she really cares about. But the thing is, that's a fairly obscure reason and doesn't really land well. It doesn't land on any tangible facts. Really, the easiest thing to do would be to let Venus play a few games against Serena and then pull out because of an injury. So cross those out. Next, there's Bud Collins' wife. First, I should mention that Collins was a longtime, and I should emphasize, extremely well-liked and respected tennis reporter. His wife, Anita, said in an email to a Sports Illustrated reporter, Bud was about to do TV when the Venus-Serena match was canceled with about five minutes' notice. I happened to be walking through the inner corridor and saw Venus running past me. I said, good luck. She said hi and ran on. It did not appear to me that she had the slightest injury. The audience was well within their rights to boo. They were booing poor manners. Venus never came out to explain or apologize. There was nothing racial about it. Now, Bud's wife is sticking up for the fact that accusing over 10,000 people of being racist is unfair, and I'd agree with her. But to say you saw Venus running around in the back corridor sounds far-fetched. My opinion, you can't exactly say running around in a hallway means you're good to go play healthy professional tennis. Next, there's Venus Williams appearing at that finals match. Two days later, after she said she couldn't play. The thing is, when she is walking down those stairs, she seems fine. So accusations come out, not just from around the world, but from respected news outlets. The New York Times said that she revealed no sign of a limp, no rap on her controversial right knee. And this is true. She doesn't appear to have a limp, but we've seen athletes time and time again, unable to walk one day, but They sleep on it, and, well, sometimes it's even worse the next day. Other times, it's completely fine. Good as new. Also, if Venus thought this was important or some sort of story, she could have faked a limp. So that only leaves the following, none of which I think really add up. The Williams sisters' denial of a potential match fix 
aren't denied as forcefully as some think they should be. Then there's Elena. Then there's members of the media with conjecture like the match smelled funny. And then there's the National Enquirer. And last, the fact that there was some reason to do this for the rankings. Facts can be stubborn things, said John Adams, and none of those add up. The Williams sisters didn't grow up like most others in the tennis world, and thus didn't have the same approach. And they really hated playing each other. And so they'd miss certain tournaments. The more I've come to understand this, the more it seems it's a sign of deep-rooted sisterly love, opposed to Machiavellian tactics. Sometimes, oftentimes, splashy headlines get attention, and the body of the content underneath that headline is void of proof, much less proper information. We've been asking the Williams sisters to prove something that they can't, asking them to prove something that doesn't seem to have happened, unfounded in any facts. But, as Paul Harvey would say, don't let noisy news distress you. Don't let the headline writers rain on your parade. It is clear there was no match fixing. And so while I close this chapter, Serena opened a new one in 2015. After refusing to play at Indian Wells for nearly 15 years, she decided to return. On February 4th, 2015, Serena Williams wrote an announcement for Time magazine. In this announcement, among other things, she says that Indian Wells, quote, haunted me for a long time. It haunted Venus and our family as well. But most of all, it angered and saddened my father. He dedicated his whole life to prepping us for this incredible journey. And there he had to sit and watch his daughters being taunted, sparking cold memories of his experiences growing up in the South. Thirteen years and a lifetime in tennis later, things feel different. A few months ago, when a Russian official made racist and sexist remarks about Venus and me, the WTA and USTA immediately condemned him. It reminded me of how far the sport has come and how far I've come too. I have faith that fans in Indian Wells have grown with the game and know me better than they did in 2001. Indian Wells was a pivotal moment of my story, and I'm a part of the tournament story as well. Together, we have a chance to write a different ending. And so, Serena triumphantly returns in 2015. And when she returns, this is the reaction she gets when she takes the court. A standing ovation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the number one player in the world, Serena Williams! About a minute into this, the cheers only get louder. In the crowd is a proud mother tearing up, or seen Price. Also towards the front, Bill Gates, and I can't forget, smiling and clapping is none other than John McEnroe. A Hollywood ending. Almost. Serena wins her first few matches and is then prepared to play in the semifinals. The last time she was in the semifinals, she didn't play, as you know by now, Venus was injured and dropped out. Well, 
In a turn that I wish David Foster Wallace was around to describe, something surreal happens. Before the semifinals is set to begin, ESPN interviews Serena's coach. Well, she she had pain, I mean, since a few days already, and uh, yesterday at practice, it became really, really worse. Uh, of course, she really wanted to play, really bad, so this morning we, we decided to try. Uh, she was, I mean, the pain was really bad, she couldn't bend the knee, so it was difficult to imagine playing, but she wanted to wait, hoping that maybe later it will be better, and uh, we we finally practiced. Uh, a few hours before the match to see she had a lot of pain she uh, she decided to to uh, have an injection to try to play but even with the, in the, the injection she had pain she had a lot of pain even walking so it didn't make sense to, to go on the court and not being able to to play Serena drops out because of an injury in the semifinals she's leaving the tournament in a car one can assume disappointed the tournament is ending again with a match not played, headed to get an MRI to see just how bad the injury is. When Serena stops the driver, turn around, she says. She wants to get to the court and tell everyone herself what's happening, not a tournament organizer or her coach. She walks to the center of the court with tears in her eyes. I just really injured my knee and I fought through it. I kept playing and um, today I, I just was struggling just to just even walk and it was it was really sad because um, you know I, I really just felt four months ago I decided to start this journey and come back here at a place that I've had so much success and um, it's been a wonderful journey and I have to say that I'm so excited to have been able to come out here and and to start to build so many wonderful new memories and I can only promise to come back next year and play right here on this court in front of you guys and it will be my pleasure so thank you so much. Serena on behalf of everybody here at Indian Wells we wish you a speedy recovery. We love you. This is always home. And please know that there's an invitation for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the number one player in the world, Serena Williams. So off we go. What a lovely ending to this story as the sun sets in the 82 degree, well, not so fast. Raymond Moore, the CEO of the Indian Wells Tournament, made some news. It's one of the most popular tennis tournaments in the world. But this morning, Raymond Moore, the man in charge of the BNP Paribas Open at Indian Wells in California, is causing an uproar over his comments about female tennis players. You know, if in my next life when I come back, I want to be someone in the WTA because <laughs> they, they ride on the coattails of the men. They don't make any decision, then they're lucky. If I was a lady player, I'd go down every every night on my knees and thank God that the Roger Federer and the Rafa Nadal were born because they've carried the sport. Serena Williams, who won the event twice and was this year's runner-up, responded immediately. There's only one way to interpret that. Get on your knees, which is offensive as enough, and thank a man, which is not. We as women have come a long way and um, we shouldn't have to dropped to our knees at any point, though I feel like, you know, that is such a disservice to her and every female, not only a female athlete, but every woman on this planet. Raymond Moore was soon fired, and we reached out to him, but he didn't call back. 
In response to women riding the men's coattails, Robin Roberts brilliantly commented on Good Morning America. Does he know that at the U.S. Open this past year, the women's singles final sold out before the men's? In 2017, Serena won the Australian Open, but then began missing tournaments, including Indian Wells, which made total sense when this news broke. We are back now with that exciting baby news for Serena Williams, the tennis superstar revealing she's pregnant. As pointed out, Serena again broke boundaries, this time for people's perceptions of pregnant women and what they're capable of. I, for one, did not know the following. Being pregnant, winning a Grand Slam title. Now, I've never done either, but I hear both can be challenging. Well, apparently Serena Williams did them both at the same time earlier this year. That's right. She was about eight weeks pregnant when she won the Australian Open. And this is one small part of why I believe Serena is the best athlete of our generation. Serena has won 72 titles and an open-era record of 23 Grand Slam singles titles. Serena has been ranked number one on eight separate occasions between 2002 and 2017. Perhaps what I find most impressive is her career record. Serena has won 789 times to her 132 losses. This is a career-winning percentage of 85.67%. So every 100 matches or so that she plays, she's winning 85 of them. It's a higher number than Roger Federer, who sits at 72.07%. This is why Roger Federer has called Serena the greatest ever. Why Billie Jean King has said the same. In early 2018, Serena decided her first tournament play since giving birth would be at Indian Wells. After getting through the first two rounds, she was facing a tough opponent in the third round. It was a beautiful night as she got ready to play. Richard, unfortunately, was not there. He hasn't been in the spotlight as much recently. He's getting older and had a stroke in 2016. But I do want to say that when Richard was asked only a few years ago about all of the success his daughters have had with tennis, his response had me kind of smiling. He said, to this day, I think Venus and Serena's education is better than their tennis. Despite the manifestos, hours of practice, and throwing rackets and footballs as far as possible, Richard always kept his eye on his daughter's education. And so, finally, in that third round of Indian Wells, Serena's opponent outplayed her, and Serena was defeated. Sort of. What really happened? She lost to her best friend and her big sister, Venus. To be able to do the things that you have done and to keep fighting and to be such a role model. There are hundreds of little girls walking around here tonight who are seeing you as a role model. What does that mean? Yeah, wow. You know, I'm, I'm from right down the street in Compton, California, and <laughs> this just shows wherever you come from, if you put in the work and you believe in yourself, you can do anything. And to come here and to walk out on this court, the significance on so many levels, to feel the love for you in here is palpable. There are a lot of fans in here. This will always be home for you, and we love you here.
next week on What Really Happened. In the last couple of years, American embassy officials in Cuba, China, and Uzbekistan have been getting injured. Certain U.S. government officials have claimed they were sonic attacks. At different points in my journey, I've been convinced that acoustic weapons don't even exist, that this was the Russians, and then the Cubans, and then, believe it or not, the Americans, or that it was rogue factions within different countries, only to then think maybe it was environmental factors or mass hysteria or a wide range of other medical conditions I've never heard of. I do have an opinion by the end of this, but it's been a long ride of talking with the CIA, human ambassadors, neurologists, spies, and a guy named Golden. That's next week on What Really Happened. If you like the show, it'd mean a lot to me if you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And I know your time is valuable, but even leaving a comment, a nice comment, would be much appreciated. Also, while many of you may be wondering if we're going to discuss what happened in just the last year of Serena's life, from her cat suit at the French Open to the uproar over uh, the U.S. Open, we do have our reaction episodes. And reaction episodes are a really cool chance for all of you to tell me what you think, facts that I may have gotten wrong in the episode or opinions you have or the latest events that have occurred in Serena's career. You can also become, and this is unique to season two and really our show, you can become a contributor to our show by calling our contributors number at 413-471-2975. That's 413-471-2975. Or you can go to our website, jenkspod.com slash contributors. I want to thank our producers, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, and everyone at Cadence 13. That includes you, Chris Flannery. Guests, I want to thank very much for coming on this week's episode, Selena Roberts, Ben Rothenberg, and James Blake.